You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Dear listeners, good morning and welcome to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam Radio. Today is Tuesday, 19th of December, and the time is 7 minutes past 7. Um, today, as usual, we will start with our uh, new segment, uh, followed by um, segment one. And the topic of, of today's segment, um, for, for segment one, is hunger, a weapon of war. Um, segment two today is exercise is more effective than counseling or medication for depression. And segment three we will be discussing two in five adults in England wouldn't visit their GP for possible cancer symptoms. So dear listeners, through today's show, do stay with us. Um, if you want to call in uh, throughout any of the segments, then the number is 020-8687-7878. Or if you would like to uh, drop a tweet, our Twitter handle is at Voice of Islam UK. And today I have with me um, my co-host, my co-presenter, my colleague, uh, Brother Daniel Ahmed. Uh, Daniel, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. How are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing great. Um, just came here in a bit of drizzle, happening outside. Mm. Dark, gloomy. Very dark. <laughs> yeah, but I had a coffee, cup of coffee before the show, so... Feeling so great you, now. You you've got your coffee and you got your caffeine in for today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that'll give you the energy instead of the sun, right? Literally. Um, still, it's dark outside, you know. So coffee needed for the, before the show. Indefinitely. Um, talking of the weather, the latest forecast for the UK today is that we will see a wet start in England and Wales, but rain will clear to sunny spells in the afternoon. Um. Staying windy with bright spells and blustery showers in the north, some wintry on the hills. Tonight, southern areas will start dry and clear, but clouds move in from the west toward dawn. Northern areas will see blustery showers in the west, drier with clear spells in the east. Tomorrow will be windy with steadier rain soon moving on into the northwest and sweeping eastwards across the north. Drier further south, but it will be cloudy with a few spots of rain, mainly in the west. And the outlook will be for Thursday to Saturday, breezy on Thursday with showers in the north and snow in the hills in the far north. Drier to the south and east, windy on Friday with showers in the west building into steady rain and becoming confined to the northwest later. Snow likely in the hills drier to the south and east, windy and cold again on Saturday with rain and hill snow in the north, drier and brighter south. So uh, be ready for, um, it'll, be, it'll be more of a, a, a dry uh, few days for us in the south. Moving on towards today's newspaper headline, which reads, Furious Covid PPE row and Esther Ranson signs up for Dignitas. Today's papers 
are leading with a variety of stories. The Guardian's front page reports a furious row between Michelle Moan and the Sunak government after comments made to the BBC over the Tory peers' links to a PPE company that won lucrative deals during the COVID-19 pandemic. It reports, Moan claims, the Cabinet Office, Government and NHS all knew about my involvement from the very beginning, before her husband's firm signed a PPE contract. The, the, the Guardian also reports that TikTok staff have been told they should avoid flagging potential problems on Amazon accounts to protect the video platform's lucrative commercial relationship with the e-commerce firm. In a statement to the paper, a TikTok spokesperson said the allegations are wrong or based on misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. The I leads with new EU travel checks for UK passport holders from next year. Reporting fingerprint and facial scans are planned from October 2024. And that the new checks could be could, could see waiting times at European border security double as a result. The paper also previews leveling up security, leveling up Secretary Michael Gove. Uh, appearance at the COVID inquiry. The front page of the Times also features the levelling up secretary, reporting that Michael Gove is set to announce new powers to strip councils of their powers over planning if they delay or deny legitimate house building in their local areas. In international news, the Times suggests pressure is increasing on Israel to renew ceasefire talks with Hamas. Uh -huh. <clears throat> the Sun leads with quotes from British teenager Alex Batty, who was found in France after going missing six years ago, who says he's happy to be home for, for Christmas. It also reports police suggesting that there is every chance Alex's grandfather is still alive, despite Alex telling French prosecutors that he has died. The Mirror is among a number of papers leading on <coughs> Esther Ranson, who says she has signed up with the Voluntary Assisted Dying Group Dignitas, saying she may take the path to spare her family the anguish of seeing her suffering an agonizing death to lung cancer. Also on the front page is Alex Patty's return in time for Christmas. Mm -hmm. The Daily Express also features Esther Ranson. Uh, quoting her as saying she may buzz off to Dignitas in Zurich, adding her family uh, respects it as my decision and my choice. The paper also features her call for a vote on voluntary assisted dying in the UK to allow relatives to avoid witnessing a painful bad death. NHS Dentists on the Brink Headlines The Daily Mail reporting that NHS dental services are at their most perilous point ever. I'm quoting a report from the Nuffield Trust that calls for radical reforms to slow the decay of the service. It has also picked up on the Esther Ranson story as well as what it calls an absurd furor over the newly crowned Miss Francis' short hairstyle. Mm -hmm. The Daily Telegraph leads a transgender guidance for teachers, which the paper says will be published on Tuesday. 
The publication says that under the new guidelines, teachers will be told to report to parents if a child wants to change their gender and that there will be no sanctions if a pupil's preferred pronoun are not followed. <clears throat> also on the Telegraph's um, front page are the Esther's Ransom story as well as uh, Michael Gove's uh, housing planning reforms. The story of an undercover police officer's work to help catch a killer leads Tuesday's Metro. The paper describes how an officer befriended a man suspected of murder in a two-year operation. A picture of the man confessing on camera accompanies the story, which led to an arrest ten years after the crime took place. Mm -hmm. The Financial Times leads on the abandoning of a £20 billion acquisition deal between tech giants, uh, tech giants Adobe and Figma due to no clear paths to receive necessary regulatory approvals from the UK and Brussels watchdogs. It reports that the deal had faced regulator probes of affairs. It would stifle competition and innovation in the graphic design field. An increase in rates of corporate bankruptcy also features on the front page, as does a report on BP halting its oil shipment through the Swiss Canal to, due to <clears throat> increasingly attacks by the Aussie rebels. Shane McGowan, the late frontman of the Celtic punk band, the Pogues dominates the Daily Star's front page, as the paper suggests. He has communicated to his wife through mystic connection to help her cope with the loss. The Daily Telegraph leads with details of the government's first guidance for teachers on transgender issues. It says schools will be told to presume that a child cannot change gender. It will also advocate a parent-first approach, which will also mean head teachers telling parents if that is something a child wants to do. The paper reports that teachers and other pupils will not will, will also not have to use the preferred pronouns of children and staff won't face sanctions if they choose not to. The guidance says it says has been promised since 2018 and it quotes a Whitehall source as saying that time has been taken to strike the right balance on what is a complex and sensitive issue. The front page of The Guardian reports what it describes as a furious row between Baroness Moan and the government after she admitted to the BBC that she had lied about her links to a PPE company that won lucrative deals during the COVID-19 pandemic. The paper says that Michelle Moan claims the Cabinet Office, government and NHS all knew about their involvement from the very beginning before her husband's firm signed a PPE contract. NHS Dentists on the Brink is a headline in the Daily Mail. It has been looking at the report from the Nuffield Trust which says that NHS dental services are at their most perilous point ever and that the days of heavily subsided NHS dentistry are gone for good. The Times reports that Housing Secretary Michael Gove is expected to tell councils that they will lose their planning powers if they delay or deny legitimate house building in their areas. The paper says it is one of a number of, of reforms from the government which will aim to tackle what it describes as England's chronic shortage of homes. The Telegraph also carries a story. It says 
Mr. Gov will also tell councils that they will not have to set aside protected countryside to meet future population growth, as previous guidelines had suggested. A number of the papers carry a photo on their front page of Dame Esther Ranson, who told the BBC's The Today podcast that she believes MPs should be given a free vote on changing the rules on assisted dying. Dame Esther, who is 83, is undergoing treatment for stage 4 lung cancer and has also revealed that she has joined the Assisted Dying Centre Dignitas in Zurich. The Sun carries a photograph of a young Alex Petty, the missing 17-year-old boy who was found in France last week after he disappeared in 2017 with his mum and grandfather. He has, the paper says, been reunited with his grandmother in Oldham. Happy to be home is the paper's headline. A new study shows that chimpanzees can recognise friends or relatives they may not have seen for 20 years, according to the Times. Scientists at two American universities, it reports, have been testing chimps and bonobos by using eye-tracking technology to record whether they looked when they, where they looked when they were shown an image of a stranger or another animal they had known from the past. It found the paper reports their eyes were drawn to and lingered longer on the images of old acquaintances and they were not distressed by the experience, but at times were seemingly mesmerised. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, very, you know, briefly explained uh, regarding the news headlines. Uh, there is one uh, news um, mm. which I read this morning and which caught my eye is that there is a earthquake um, in China. Mm. Just um, you know, it struck yesterday. Okay, and um, the details of regarding this earthquake is that. At least 105 people have been killed and more than 220 injured, sadly. And the magnitude of the earthquake is 6.2, which struck. Mm. And it struck uh, the rural Gangsu province in the northwest China. And another 13 people have died in neighboring, um, with 182 also injured there. Rescuers are braving freezing weather with temperatures below minus 13. And uh, officials says that the sub-zero temperatures means that the golden window to find survivors is um, shorter than usual. And more than 5,000 houses, you know, have been damaged as um, have roads as well as power and water supplies. And all of which are... Uh, hampering rescue efforts. The government has dispatched uh, teams of rescue workers to assist local emergency crews. Um, China's leader uh, uh, has ordered full rescue efforts. So that's uh, brief uh, news um, and very latest news uh, from China where an earthquake has struck and you know it has been happening a lot i see uh, i believe that um, we see just in the beginning of, of this year i mm. believe that a very deadly earthquake struck in uh, syria and turkey yeah. where people died in thousands uh, and um, um i believe as uh, as a muslim it is uh, first of all our duty to 
um, show our um, our thoughts and prayers for such people who died and because um, they are our fellow human beings in humanity and uh, we should pray for them Indeed. and secondly um, we should try to uh, you know uh, provide uh, as many facilities as you can um, um, for example we can you know uh, donate charities to different NGOs yeah yeah and if we can also you know I mean we've, we have had um, great shows on the voice of Islam right, yeah. uh, in which we've spoken to various charities and and they tell us how mm. you can donate your your money your valuables or your clothes Mm. And how they actually help those people in need, okay. and not just to that. There was there was there were shows in which um, we were explained that you can also donate your time mm. instead of your your money. You can also donate your time for these uh, towards these causes as well. So there's always something that we can do. There's always something um, that's there. There's a window open for everyone in their mm. unique way to to help. And, and then at the end of the day, um, if you can't do any of those, that's not a problem. Like you mentioned just now. Just praying for them, Daniel. Uh, mm. That is something which holds uh, a lot of power behind it. I mean, that's the most powerful weapon we have got. Exactly. In this in today's world. And moreover, you know, the, um, um, as being an MD Muslim, uh, we know that there is um, an NGO, um, Humanity First, um, a disaster relief uh, which works more in more than 50 countries. And... Um, Probably we can also donate there and um, uh, who who are helping in many parts of the world. And also we're going to talk about in one of our segments, um, yeah, the, uh, probably the first segment, which will be about the hunger, a weapon of war, and which is a kind of result of the um, Israel and Palestine uh, war. And um, mm. there we we will also gonna talk about the those people, um, those survivors who um, who have nothing to uh, nothing for for food or for clothes. So we also have that uh, that segment which will be dedicated to um, such topic. But uh, I think we are just moving towards the end of this segment and uh, we will take a short break and please do join us after the break and we will start our first segment which will be Hunger, a Weapon of War. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community in Islam states, It is proper for you to have sympathy for others and to purify yourselves so that thereby you may share to a degree, the qualities of the Holy Spirit. Remember that without the Holy Spirit, true righteousness cannot be attained. Discard altogether the base animal desires in you and follow the path to the pleasure of Allah, be it the narrowest and most difficult of all. Do not be enamored of worldly pleasures because they lead you away from God. That suffering which pleases God is better than that pleasure which displeases him. That defeat which pleases God is better than the victory which earns his displeasure. Abandon that love which draws you nigh to the wrath of Allah. If you come to him with a pure heart, he will help you in every way and no enemy will be able to harm you. 
Writings of the Promised Messiah A wonderful revelation was vouchsafed to me in Urdu in 1868 or 1869. It happened in this way. Molvi Abu Sayyid Muhammad Hussain of Patala, who had at one time been my fellow student, came back to Batala after completing his divinity studies. The people of Batala looked askance at him on account of some of his notions and ideas. One person was very insistent that I should debate a point in dispute with Maulvi Muhammad Hussain. Yielding to his insistence, I accompanied this man in the evening to the home of Maulvi Muhammad Hussain and found him in the company of his father in the mosque. To summarize, upon hearing the explanation of Maulvi Muhammad Hussain, I concluded that there was nothing objectionable in his statement, and consequently, for the sake and pleasure of Allah, I declined to enter into debate with him. The same night, the revelation came to me from Allah the Noble with reference to my declining to enter into the debate. Tera khuda, tera اور وہ تجھے بہت برکت دے گا یہاں تک کہ بادشاہ تیرے کپڑوں سے برکت ڈھونیں گے Your God is well pleased with what you have done He will bless you greatly so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments Thereafter in a vision I was shown those kings they were riding upon horses Since my attitude of humility and lowliness was adopted purely for the sake of God and his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam Allah the Perfect Benevolent did not desire to leave it unrewarded. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Anbiya Muslim community in Islam, states, God Almighty has divided his wonderful universe into three categories. First, the world which is manifest and can be conceived through the eyes and the ears and other sensory organs, directly or indirectly, with the help of instruments. Secondly, the world which is hidden and which can be understood through deductive reasoning and hypothesizing. Thirdly, the world which lies even farther than the hidden world, so hard to conceive and almost beyond the reach of imagination. Very few are those who are aware of its existence. That is an entirely obscure world which cannot be conceived through deduction, but is only imagined. One can have access to it only with the help of spiritual vision or revelation or word from God and not by any other means. As is evident from the unchanging will of God manifested in nature, one can safely deduce that as God has provided man with the apparatus to understand the first two categories of his creation mentioned above, similarly he must have provided man with the apparatus and instruments to conceive that world of his creation which is mentioned under the third category. And that apparatus, as we have already mentioned, comprises spiritual vision, revelation, and the word of God. This mode of communication can never be conceived to be inoperative or to have ceased altogether in any age. Nay, but those who fulfilled the prerequisite have always been gifted with this and will continue to be gifted with the same. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, It is proper for you to have sympathy for others and to purify yourselves so that thereby you may share, to a degree, the qualities of the Holy Spirit. Remember that without the Holy Spirit, true righteousness 
cannot be attained. Discard altogether the base animal desires in you and follow the path to the pleasure of Allah, be it the narrowest and most difficult of all. Do not be enamored of worldly pleasures because they lead you away from God. That suffering which pleases God is better than that pleasure which displeases Him. That defeat which pleases God is better than the victory which earns His displeasure. Abandon that love which draws you nigh to the wrath of Allah. If you come to Him with a pure heart, He will help you in every way and no enemy will be able to harm you. of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back after the short break. Um, uh, before the break, we were discussing the new segment. And now in this segment, we will be discussing hunger, a weapon of war. Um, if you will be interested and if you want to call in then the number is 020-8687-7878 to have a discussion with us or share your thoughts you can also tweet us um, our twitter handle is at voice of islam uk so hunger a weapon of war mass starvation follows many of the world uh, many of the worst modern wars starvation is a weapon in certain situations. This segment will discuss how food is made a weapon during war and the effects of it. So, uh, Daniel, in, 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 in the recent events um, that have been unfolded, um, how has hunger been, been used as a weapon? <clears throat> so uh, I believe it's a very you know um, very vital question in in the scenario of the current um, situation, hmm. and um, we know that food, water, and fuel uh, are being used as a weapons of war in Gaza. Um, says UNRWA Commissioner General, and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, it's been a very sad situation uh, which mm. we have to um, experience or see. And, you know, um, just today, uh, tomorrow before coming here, I was reading that um, the 
one of the um, higher authorities from the USA uh, said that we spoke to Israel um, to do uh, more surgical strikes, and uh, which means that um, there should be there should not any unintentional killing of uh, um, any civilians. Uh, there should be no harm or damage to any hospitals, schools, or any other surroundings, um, and there should be only. Uh, if they if they want to target something, they should be it should be only a in, intended uh, legitimate target. Mm. So, <clears throat> um, and you know, after reading that news, I I believe that, <clears throat> and just, it, it just came to my mind that whether or not so it means that uh, there was no surgical strikes before that mm. in the beginning, and now they are you know promoting and saying that you should do more surgical strikes. And, um, you know, and uh, it's kind of very getting very late to say uh, or to give such statement and, uh, and which we can see as a result. Um, um, the negative results are coming out of this. And mm. um, as a result, many people in the Gaza uh, Strip has to face um, harsh climates uh, and uh, harsh realities and uh, the mm, and have to be deprived of humanitarian aid of of of, of simple day to day yeah literally and um, oxfam says that about 104 trucks a day uh, would be needed to you know deliver food to gaza to overcome this crisis and um, <clears throat> oxfam has also you know uh, renewed its call for essential goods to enter the besieged um, got a strip and said starvation was being used as a weapon of war. Daniel, in Islam, mm. uh, when we when we learn about wars <coughs> uh, from early Islam and and the teachings of Islam for war and battle, what what is it? What's the main um, teaching and ruling on 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 regards to food as well? Mm. It's I mean, at the end of the day, it is that you should not slay the enemy's flock, mm. right? And you should also save your own food. So, uh, the simple teaching which we get from the beginning of Islam mm. is that no matter what the circumstances are, um, it is a noble, noble example of 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 ideal uh, Muslim conduct of war that you do not slay any of the enemies. Any mm. enemies. Flock. I mean, and Islam has food as well. Yeah, Islam has very beautifully, you know, has set a uh, pattern, has uh, has established uh, very basic moral and excellent uh, grounds indeed and um, and for example um, in the holy quran allah the almighty says that whoever relieves uh, relieves a believer's distress of the distressful aspect of this um, of this word uh, allah will rescue him from a difficulty of the difficulties of the hereafter then uh, sorry that was um, that was from um, sahih muslim uh, hadith um, uh, or the saying of the Holy Prophet uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and in the Holy Quran Allah Almighty says that um, help one another in act of piety and righteousness and do not assist each other in acts of sinfulness hmm. and transgression and be aware of uh, Allah even Allah Almighty says in the Holy Quran that for example if you want to you know uh, take revenge for example 
do not exceed do mm. not transgress mm. indeed indeed daniel uh, will we've got a uh, pre-recorded interview with with the professor mm. which uh, we'll play now we'll listen to it and then um, we will continue with the islamic angle once we come back from 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 this from this sure. guest we're pleased to be joined by professor john quigley over the phone uh, professor quigley is a scholar in public international law and Professor Emeritus at the Moritz College of Law of the Ohio State University in Columbus. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for coming on to speak to us. Um, we're looking at uh, what's happening in the Middle East at the moment, and as an author of many books on Palestine, what are your findings on hunger as a result of the Israeli-Gaza war at, the pre- at present? Well, I am in agreement with a report that was just put out uh, today or yesterday by Human Rights Watch, which accuses Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war uh, in Gaza. Um, And I think the uh, situation as it's developed uh, over the last several weeks uh, justifies that accusation. that is, that the population is being ordered to move around. They're being bombed in places to which they move. Uh, there is a lack of, of food, of, uh, of fuel in order to, you know, to produce food and, and to cook food. Um, uh, and there's a, a lack of water. Um, and when you put all those together, um, it, it really is a devastating impact on, on the population. Mm-hmm. Um, no, absolutely. Um, we are told half of Gaza's population is currently starving. How do you think this war of starvation can end? Well, I'm afraid it's going to have some very long-term uh, consequences negatively for, uh, for the population. I don't know how... <laughs> Uh, it will end. I think the government of Israel is uh, intent on making life so difficult that the population will want to leave Gaza entirely uh, and that the population will put pressure uh, on Egypt to mm-hmm. open up the, the border. Um, uh, whether that will actually come to pass, I don't know. You think mass exodus is the only answer to this issue? Um, well, it's not the only answer. There should be a, uh, a ceasefire uh, and an improvement in the uh, humanitarian aid that's going in. Um, and if the international community uh, you know, takes that approach... Uh, then I think there is a, a possibility uh, that this could end without a mass exodus. I think the situation has already gotten so bad that we're going to see long-term negative effects on the population uh, of Gaza, the, the children who are not getting the, the nutrients that they need. Uh, you know whether those children will grow up with 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 uh, developmental defects. Uh, uh, those situations, I think, um, uh, are already on the table, and I, I I think all one can do is to try to keep them from becoming worse. Mm. You mentioned children. Um, 
What kind of development will uh, defects do you anticipate? Well, I mean, with a small child, if if you don't have sufficient nutrients, um, it impacts on the development of the child uh, physically, on their growth. Uh, one sees that in situations of of starvation, where children are simply uh, not able to to uh, grow into adult bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you think there is any other uh, effect that will be impacting on children as a result of uh, the uh, policy that uh, is being pursued about uh, leading to starvation? Well, yes, you also have severe psychological trauma. I mean, you have children who have seen their parents blown up. Uh, that kind of trauma uh, is very serious for a a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a child doesn't know that he or she can go to bed at night uh, and know that they will be alive in the morning, uh, this is a horrible trauma. Mm-hmm. Well, what more do you think can be done to raise awareness about hunger in particular? And how, how can we help uh, those affected? Well, I think the international community needs to take a more aggressive approach uh, towards Israel. Um, under the UN Charter, the United Nations could organize a military force to go in and drive the Israeli army uh, out of Gaza. Uh, another thing that could be done is that Israel could be sued in the International Court of Justice uh, for genocide. Um, and that, to date, has not been done by any state, uh, but, but any uh, state that is a party to the Genocide Convention uh, has the legal capacity to file a lawsuit against uh, Israel. Uh, and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation has already discussed this possibility. I think if the OIC were to take a more assertive role, uh, we could get a lawsuit uh, initiated in the International Court of Justice. Mm. Now, you've uh, uh, written books on Palestine, so you're a student uh, of uh, uh, this conflict, I'm sure. How do you see, from your perspective, how do you see it unfolding? How do you see the future? Well, the way it's unfolding now is is very negative. The Israeli army is is saying that it's going to continue until it can uh, defeat Hamas. But uh, there doesn't seem to be any possibility that that will happen without a very long-term and, and, and very destructive uh uh, approach by the IDF. Um, so I mean, the Secretary General of the United Nations has already put the issue before the Security Council uh, for a ceasefire. Um, uh, that would be helpful um, if the United States now were to change its position uh, in the Security Council um, and, and if the international community were to put serious pressure on, on Israel. I mean, Europe is not putting pressure on Israel. Most of Israel's uh, foreign trade is with the European Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, the European Union uh, could force Israel uh, very quickly 
in order to change what it's doing in Gaza. Mm. Do you see that happening? Do you have hope? Um, so far, I don't have great hope. Uh, the government of Germany has been putting very little pressure uh, on uh, on Israel. Um, the government of France has been a bit better, uh, but but uh, so far the the, the uh, policy of the EU is not very encouraging. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us, uh, Professor. So that was um, a very interesting um, interview uh, from Professor John Quigley. Um, we were mentioning about um, wars and, and um, what Islam's teachings are and Daniel was wonderfully mm. explaining and shedding light on this topic. Uh, so Daniel, if you can, if you've got anything else you'd like to mention for us, please. Yeah, as before this uh, interview, uh, recording interview, uh, we were mentioning that um, as the people of the civilians of Gaza, uh, they have to face different harsh realities and are living in dire situation where they are deprived of the basic human necessities and mm. human needs um, like food um, and the medical stuff and literally the basic things uh, which they don't have and are in crisis and you know um, uh, just uh, as we were mentioning this, we also received a very beautiful question from a caller uh, which was regarding the suffering. And, you know, just be, uh, regarding this topic, this is a very lengthy topic, but um, in, in, in precisely, um, for example, uh, all people in this world, uh, we see that they have to go, uh, go through certain... Um, uh, you can say harsh realities or go through for, or have to face difficulties. So um, the definition of suffering may vary from person to person. And for example, if we look at the life of the Holy Prophet and uh, his companions um, in the first uh, 13 years, uh, I believe so, more than 30 years, they have to go through many different harsh, uh, have to face different uh, harsh realities and have to uh, you know uh, get into the battlefield and uh, fight but uh, in in precise Allah the Almighty states that um, no fatigue no disease nor sorrow or nor nor sadness nor hurt nor distress befall a Muslim even if were if it were the prick of he receive he receives uh, from a thorn but that Allah expiates some of his sins for that and that's the you know point which we need to keep in our, our minds mm. uh, daniel we have with us our our uh, second guest for this for the show mm -hmm. which is mr neil sammons um neil sammons is senior campaigner on palestine with war on want he has been to palestine many times including gaza and lived for one year in Nablus in the occupied West Bank. Previously, he worked with uh, Amnesty International on human rights in the Middle East and with medical aid for Palestinians on the right to health. Uh, Mr. Neil Sammons, good morning and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio, The Breakfast Show. 
Good morning. Assalamu alaikum. Nice to be here. Wa alaikum assalam. Nice to be with you too. Um, so, without any further ado, uh, Mr. Neil Simmons, what is food insecurity and how does it lead to malnutrition? So yes, um, food insecurity is when people do not have um, enough access to food. Um, mm. Really, that's to nut- nutritious food. Um, but and that can be for reasons because there's not enough around, um, or they're they're for example they're the wage laborers and they can't build up um, enough kind of like supplies and they quickly can become they and their families who they're providing for could become um, malnourished if um, they're not um, having enough access mm. to decent quality food. Already around the world, it's appalling, it's around 2.5 billion people are considered food insecure, wow. um, roughly a third of the world's population. Um, and sadly, while, while that kind of like natural circumstances, climate change, disasters, and play strong roles in food insecurity. Most of the time, it's really down to human choice and political decisions, mm. um, often you know, forms of political control, um, which deprive people of um, enough access to food and nutritious food. Um, and of course, that's just uh, one or two steps away from being a severe problem of malnutrition. Malnutrition, just as a word, remember, it's, um, it's, it's almost um, a slight misnomer. It's kind of malnutrition is poor nutrition. Okay. Now being bad. Um, and it's a little bit different to like undernourishment. But that can soon progress into um, forms of severe undernourishment um, and all the extra negative consequences which that can um, cause. Um. Mr. Simmons, wars are inherently um, violent and harmful, but destruction of resources can sometimes create more catastrophic harm than, than, than bombs and, and bullets. How does this affect um, the vulnerable people? Yes, good question. It's um, Maybe if, if I can talk about Gaza in particular, the yeah, yeah, territory where... Um, Around a month ago, the World Food, sorry, the World Health Organization said that soon we will be seeing um, more people dying from disease and probably starvation than um, the bullets and the bombs, which have already had such a devastating effect. I mean, Twenty thousand people, as you know, have been killed in Gaza in such a short time. Um, even before the seventh of October attacks, around two thirds of Gaza of Gazans were seen or were considered food insecure. That you know endured for 16 years, an unlawful blockade, mm. uh, which is you know in the words of the UN already, this is collective punishment, and it should be prosecuted against, and it should be, um, of course, reversed, where mm-hmm. the Israeli authorities have deprived yeah, the the population of um, food, fuel, electricity, medicines, and and so on, and then when they imposed their tight blockade. And they, they, they did not hide this at all. It was stated by military leaders that this was a policy. Of course, you get people who are already food insecure quickly tip over into being in an extremely high need. So if people are no longer working, especially if they're, say, like day laborers, they've got no um, no savings, um, their life circumstances become appalling um, very quickly. 
And remember too that you know, 80, 80, 80% of people in Gaza were dependent on humanitarian mm. assistance even before that. So when that humanitarian assistance is not coming in, people are quickly um, tipping. And so the young, the elderly, the ill, the poor um, are worst affected. Uh, affected. Young people, um, when they um, become um, undernourished, may develop stunting, which is when the individual um, will no longer reach their physical and mental um, potential. So they'll be permanently like, underdeveloped. Um, of course, in their daily lives, that, would, that means they can't study as well, they can't work, they can't move so well. And this is already happening in Gaza and parts of, of, of the West, West Bank. People who are sick will become more sick. They'll be sicker for longer and their conditions will be worse. People with non-communicable um, diseases, um, cancer, diabetes, etc., will, um, will, will deteriorate. Mm-hmm. And obviously you have first-hand experience by being there as well, so you, uh, you, you, you know about all of these things. Um, so definitely we, as Muslims, it's our, it's our due right to, it's our duty to, to actually pray for all of those in need and all, not 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 just them, but also throughout the world, wherever they're suffering, um, we, we we pray for them, and and they're always in our thoughts as well. Um, Neil, conflict can cause food shortages, threatening the means of survival of entire populations. Um, is this something that we can currently see happening in the world? Yes, yes, um, yeah, tragically, yes, and. Um in the you know in the, in the in the Gaza context again, if you if you think of what um, Israeli occupation forces are, are doing, where they are targeting the ability of Gazans to to to, to feed themselves or even to be mm-hmm. fed by others in a, in a situation of dependency, where um, we know that um, bakeries, flour mills, mm-hmm. um, water points. Agricultural land, greenhouses have been targeted and, and destroyed. There was a, um, a report just came out yesterday or the day before from Human Rights Watch, which I'd encourage people to read if they can, which is highlighting, highlighting how Israel has implemented a policy, official government policy of starvation, the civilian population of, of Gaza. And um, it's absolutely heinous. These are, these are war crimes. Starvation, using starvation as a weapon, weapon of war is a, starve, is a war crime, as is um, the blockade itself as collective punishment. Um, and we really need, in addition, please, to everyone's prayers, to, um, to, to ensure that our, our government, you know, the UK is responsible, is you know, complicit in what's going on, with all the support which it's given Israel diplomatically, militarily, um, continuing to transfer arms to Israel despite their almost certain use in, in war crimes against the Palestinian people. Mm. Um, and we need to see that the people are held to account, not only in, well, most importantly, in, in Israel, but also in, in the UK government, where um, senior politicians are also responsible for um, involvement in war crimes against the Palestinian people. Indeed. Um, Neil Sammons, it was uh, very nice speaking to you and um, it was nice to hear from you again on the Voice of Islam radio and we hope and pray that um, you know the, the matters of the world, the affairs of the world 
um, they come to a quick uh, solution and I made there be peace everywhere as well. Uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for being with us and we, we, we hope to hear from you soon as well. Thank you. Yes, I hope we'll be able to have um, happier stories. Um, Definitely. Life of Palestine and around the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank right. You. So that was um, our, uh, our guest, Neil Simmons, a senior campaigner on Palestine with War on Want. He has been to Palestine many times, including Gaza, and lived for a one year in, in, in Nablus in the occupied West Bank. Previously, he worked with Amnesty International on human rights in the Middle East and with the medical aid for Palestinians on the right to health. That is bringing us to towards uh, is bringing us towards the end of of, of today's uh, first segment. Um, but also, uh, we are also going to be going towards the the eight o'clock news. Um, so, dear listeners, do stay with us. Do join us after the after the break, where we will move on to our second segment, which is exercise is more effective than counselling or medication for depression. And if you would have any questions or, or would like to call in, um, then do feel free, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, welcome back to the show. Um, now we will um, uh, play a short clip uh, regarding. Uh, regarding the peace. On top of that, Hazur also mentioned in his sermon an important point, two very brief points, that one, the Muslim leaders should unite. There are 53, 54 Muslim countries, and there's that famous hadith of the Holy Prophet that the Muslim world is like a body, the Muslim ummah is like one body. Wherever you, someone is hurt, the rest of the body should feel the pain. So we all feel the pain. We are suffering. We, can't, we find it difficult to even see the images coming out of Gaza. Yet, the people who have power, we don't have any governance, but in that thing that to help the oppressor and the oppressed, the people who amongst the Muslims and Arabs who have that authority should unite and try and do something to bring about that change. And finally, the world leaders, many of them are, are implementing double standards. They're saying on the one hand that what happened was wrong and they have the right to defend, yet they're dehumanizing an entire population, and some are even going to the extent of saying it's fine to deprive them of water, of aid, and it's justified under self-defense to mass punish a population. So we, as much as possible, as a spiritual, non-political community, without any governance or political power, advising people, trying to influence people, the onus is on them, the people in power, the people in authority, to bring about that change. Dear listeners, um, moving on to segment two, um, which is exercise is more effective than counseling or medication for depression. Mental health disorders come at great cost to both the individual and society, with depression and anxiety being among the leading causes of a health related disease burden. The COVID pandemic has exacerbated the situation with a significant rise in rates of psychological distress affecting one-third of people. This segment aims to, to, to explore how uh, exercise is more effective than counselling or medication in, in treating depression. Um, so Daniel, could you just kindly um, describe what depression is? I mean, in simple terms, if we um, um, just see ourselves, uh, for example, kind of like um, 
sitting on the sofa, uh, feeling low, uh, you feel that kind of I'm getting into depression. But I believe that um, that's, the, that's, that's the thing which everybody feels um, in, a, in a day or two. Mm. But um, we are talking about that depression, which is kind of um, uh, kind of disease, which gets to that level um, where you know it um, kinds of develop into a disease. So, <clears throat> uh, but the symptoms of depression include like kind of uh, feeling unhappy or hopeless or low self-esteem and uh, finding no pleasure in things that uh, we usually enjoy. Um, so um, these are very uh, basic kind of uh, symptoms, uh, but uh, I believe that we should always be positive regarding these issues, um, and um, so that you know uh, mentally we can tackle um, this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, but um, that's the basic definition. You can say uh, the definition of depression. But if we look. Um, at this issue through the Islamic perspective, yeah. um, we have, um, I would say that we are blessed that we have His Holiness, um, Ahmad, as the worldwide uh, head of the Amgen Singh Committee, mm. uh, the current Khalif uh, of Amgen Singh Committee, and um, he, you know, uh, once um, answered um, this question that, for example, um, he said that uh, first you need to find out the underlying uh, cause of the mental health problems. Uh, those suffering should be uh, taken to a psychiatrist by their relatives and they should be treated properly and full efforts should be made uh, to rid them of their pain. So um, that's the first you know, step which uh, His Holiness has told us that we need to take. Because Sometimes um, it happens that uh, people believe that um, oh nothing gonna happen mm. that's, that's not, not something to yeah. worry about something yeah? and then it also gives them hope as well right that yeah. that, that things will be will be on the mainstream for them as well so sure. uh, Daniel we have with us our next guest for, mm. for well the first guest for this segment now um, which is Miss Salma Khan Miss Salma Khan. Um, <laughs> Nutrition consultant is based in London, who is a founder of Zingtality, a nutrition consultancy and online health shop. Miss um, Salmana Khan, good morning and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Um, so, without any further ado, um, how does lack of sleep impact health? Well, there's various um, symptoms of lack of sleep depending on how short-term or long-term the sleep is because um, some people, they suffer from a very long-term lack of sleep. They might have very serious form of insomnia. So just depending on that, scientists have linked um, lack of sleep with a variety of different symptoms. So it could range from weight gain, low energy levels, irritability, to depression, anxiety, low concentration, um, weakening of the immune system, and even high blood pressure. And why why do some people have trouble uh, falling asleep? It could be related to a lot of different reasons. Um, again, 
uh, whether depending on whether it's a short-term or long-term sleep issue. So it could be maybe stress-related, it could be something to do with the hormones, or if someone is having um, too many caffeinated uh, beverages uh, too close to bedtime, or even uh, high consumption of sugary foods. Mm. And um, also these days, um, the exposure to blue light on mobile phones and other gadgets our laptops, iPads, too close to bedtime because that tricks the mind, the brain, to think that it's daytime and that destroys um, the sleep hormone, melatonin. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, um, I'm pretty sure if somebody's having a bit of an anxiety attack or, or is feeling a bit anxious about something, that would also kind of stop them from falling asleep as well. And then seeing your... Nowadays, it's it's just... Is this, is, is the norm to be on your device or, or on your uh, any sort of device to be just streaming something before you go into sleep? Because obviously these things can. Um, I, I would say if people want to do that, and often they do because it's become, as you're correct in saying that it's become a norm. I would say just turn the light completely, the the, the light setting on your mobile right uh, to the bottom completely hmm. dim. And then check any messages or you know, watch something or read something. You can also put your device onto yeah. night mode as well, right? You can do. You can do that too. Yeah. But I think most important, importantly, thinking of the blue light, just turn the light right down to the mm. lowest setting. Miss um, Emma, can can a change in diet help people uh, who find it um, you know hard getting to sleep? Will that help them? Yeah, I mean, a couple of basic things, um, cutting down on caffeine and sugar uh, during the later part of the day. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, an amino acid called uh, tryptophan. So what this does is increase these foods, perhaps closer to bedtime, uh, which I think we can eat these foods anyway, throughout the day anyway. Tryptophan is basically an amino acid, and it's found in foods like chicken, turkey, beef, salmon, pumpkin seeds, mm. cashew nuts, oats, bananas, avocados. So um, what tryptophan does, this is an amino acid that converts um, to 5-HTP, which is another amino acid, and that's used to make uh, serotonin and a neurotransmitter in the brain, and that triggers the release of melatonin, the sleep hormone. So what happens is when we eat... Uh, Tryptophan containing foods towards the evening is better, but then also the combination of how we combine tryptophan containing foods. So, combining a little bit of kind of some carbs, for example, sweet potatoes with that tryptophan containing food would sort of help um, induce sleep in a better way. Mm. Um, so, for example, if somebody combines chicken and sweet potatoes together, because you're getting that little bit of extra carb, hmm. you're, you'll be increasing insulin levels a little bit extra. Okay. Um, so what that does, when the insulin levels spike a little bit more, um, that clears the way for tryptophan to flood the brain with less competi- competition from the other amino acids. So when, the, when tryptophan is flooding the brain, uh, there's more of it available. And, you know, in, as a result, that's how I explained, um, you be triggering more melatonin in the brain eventually. Um, are there any supplements that could help with, with improving sleep as well? Interestingly, there is the 5-HTP supplement, 
which I just discussed with you, which would help trigger um, mm. melatonin eventually, right? Then there is magnesium. There's also um, a particular type of cherry called Montmorency cherry, uh, which um, help to produce melatonin. They're actually a good natural form of melatonin. Um, there's our theanine, um, that could be purchased as well. Which, which, is which capsule, sir? Uh, theanine. So that's more for relaxing. So that can help with sleep. Um, it could be combined with any of the other items that I just mentioned. Theanine is naturally found in matcha green tea, but of course, matcha contains caffeine or any green tea. All green teas contain theanine, but they also contain caffeine. Mm. So what what uh, supplement companies have done is they've um, extracted the theanine and, and, and encapsulated it so that somebody can take it separately. And if somebody's suffering, suffering with severe um, sleep issues, they can always go to their local GP and uh, request um, a melatonin um, uh, medication. So that can sometimes help as well if, if somebody has severe sleep issues. Otherwise, the other alternative... Um, but I think they should be tried first. And um, melatonin supplements, there's something that can't be bought over the counter, right? That's that's a prescription. Yeah, in this country, um, they can't be bought over the counter, but in the USA, it's a completely different story. <laughs> they can be bought literally <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Ms. Um, Salma Khan, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us and shedding light uh, on this topic for us. Um, You're most welcome. And we hope to hear from you soon as well. Thank you. So that was Miss Salma Sultana Khan, a nutrition consultant based in London, um, who is the founder of Zintality, a nutrition uh, con- consultancy and online health shop. Bringing us back towards, um, uh, as you we were discussing before the, the, the guest, Daniel, you were mentioning, you mentioned about uh, going towards the Islamic scope of, of um, depression and, and what we can learn through Islam. And you mentioned um, the, the, the words of His Holiness as well. Um, in addition to that, have you got anything for us to say? Um, yep, so there are many, um, many uh, different uh, verses from the Holy Quran. Um, which says that, um, for example, um, um, another Martin in the Holy Quran says that surely in the remembrance of Allah uh, do hearts find peace. And that's a very uh, basic verse. Or you can say, say that um, um, apparently it looks very simple, but uh, in essence, um, it is quite uh, very deep uh, in its meaning. Um, so we should always, you know, try to remember God in our not only in our daily prayers, but also when we are working or doing uh, doing any job. And because what happens is that if we are grateful to Allah Almighty for any any kind of work or job we are doing. Mm. Or any kind of uh, things which they, which he has given to us, then obviously we we will gonna you know kind of feel uh, gratefulness in our hearts. Mm. And um, what happens as a result of this that 
the positive uh, positive hormones are released in our body and which uh, kind of uh, helps us to uh, feel very um, very positive as well now we have um, I, I want to play a small audio clip which is from MTA TV program mm-hmm. Faith Matters yeah, um, yeah. Where, where light is shed upon Islam's teachings regarding games and sports you know and, and how a strong believer is better than a weak believer so, so let's quickly just take a listen to this as Ayasa has alluded, physical and the spiritual worlds have connections in that respect and the body obviously uh, is something physical that we have to always look after. Mm-hmm. Have a healthy, as you have said, healthy body, healthy mind. So in order to worship Allah, we have to obviously keep fit in our physical senses. And for that, obviously, we have to do whatever we, we, we must in order to keep that uh, active. In fact, the Holy Prophet has alluded to this subject and we know that as a child he also enjoyed the open air and, and the fresh air so that he, he, he was getting all the uh, benefits of that environment. He said that uh, you should uh, teach your children art, uh, this, uh, the uh, sports of archery, swimming and horse riding and when we relate back that to this day and age then we, we realize that these are important physical activities that were recommended by the Holy Prophet Wasallam. 1400 years ago and relating that, that back today that we should be carrying out some physical activity of that nature but at the same time we should always keep things in moderation that anything that we do should not take us away from the remembrance of Allah so during the course of a normal day there, there are st- states when we have to remember Allah through our five daily salat and if we are out playing our sports most of the time then we will actually be doing our spiritual sense harm uh, through trying to promote our physical bodies. So always keep things in moderation that our purpose of worship Allah has defined. But to go with that, He has also given us great guidelines on how to achieve that purpose. And physical activity is something that is recommended. And as the Holy Prophet has pointed out to these things, then we obviously have to also look into that. The Holy Prophet once entered into a race himself, you know, he, he challenged his wife Hazrat Aisha to a race. So he was in the, in the habit of doing this physical sports as well, if you can think of it that way. Uh, once Hazrat Aisha won, then he challenged again and once he won and he said, now Aisha, we are equal. The promised Messiah has actually also entered into, into a race. Uh, in, his, in his youth there was uh, an inhabitant of the Punjab, Balla Singh, I think his name was, he was a very fast sprinter, you know, Usain Bolt of that time. And he, he said that I am I'm, I'm the fastest person in this area, no one can challenge me. And nobody would come forward to challenge him. The promised Messiah actually did challenge him and the promised Messiah actually won that race. So it shows that physical activities are important and these are actions that have been taken on by prophets of God as well. And as a sort of add-on point to that, uh, I mean, the Amdiya Muslim community, we believe, is a renaissance of Islam. And it's uh, interesting, is it not, that every ishtama, which is a gathering of different parts of the community, that within the programs, whilst they may be academically inspired, there's also a program that runs side by side, which is about health and fitness and indeed sport. So it again, lays an emphasis within the community, in the Amdiya Muslim community, of the importance of not just being healthy, but of 
being active in sporting pursuits as well. The, the Holy Prophet has mentioned that Al-Mu'minul Qawiyu Khairun Min Al-Mu'minid Da'if that a strong believer is better than a weaker one. Specifically mentioning that if a person has a healthy body, then he will be able to fulfill the work of serving humanity in a better manner. He will be able to fulfill the work of serving Allah the Almighty and worshipping Him in a better manner. And this is why we see that in our ijtima'at, in our annual gatherings, the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community has a specific um, section of the program where we involve ourselves in sports. And the reason for that is so that as you mentioned, a healthy mind can be developed and a healthy body can be developed so that we can fulfill our duties as citizens of the greater society and humanity and serve humanity and worship Allah the Almighty in the best possible manner. This is something, as Dr. Sahib has very wonderfully mentioned, that even prophets of God showed by their example and we should also act accordingly. So that was... Um Islam's teachings regarding games and, 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 and sports. Coming back towards the the article and and um, the study mentioned in the article, uh, there are a few points that I'd like to mention. Um, mental health disorders come at they come at great costs to both the individual and society. Um, with depression and anxiety being among the leading causes of health-related diseases. According to recent estimates, nearly half of all Australians will, will experience a mental health disorder at some point in their lifetime. While traditional treatments such as therapy and, and medication become be effective, new research highlights the importance of exercise in managing these conditions. Exercise is an effective way to treat mental health issues and can be even more effective than, than medication or counselling as well. And the British Journal of, of Sport Medicine reviewed more than 1,000 research trials examining the effects of physical activity on depression, anxiety and uh, psychological uh, uh, distress. Um, so, doing 150 minutes um, each week of, of various types of physical activity um, that can you know that can include brisk walking lifting weights and yoga um, significantly reduces depression anxiety and psychological distress uh, compared to usual care but at the same time it's also important to remember as Daniel also also mentioned earlier on um, through the Islamic scope that as happiness comes and goes, uh, you know, with, with, with the ups and downs of life, um, the the Holy Quran focuses on the importance of finding inner peace and, and tranquility, um, remembrance of of Allah the Almighty is the key to this, uh, as you mentioned before. Um, he says he states in the Holy Quran in, in chapter thirteen, verse twenty nine that surely in Allah's remembrance do the hearts find peace. Taking up more physical activities is a great way to boost um, your mood. Exercise is a great way to relieve any stress you may have. And it can range anywhere from yoga and a hike 
to to swimming and and being um a support certainly and uh, you know <clears throat> i personally i would say uh, and uh, i would say that boys also has the experience of uh, doing sports and uh, running as well I think you're actually trying to 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 to, to mock my physical no, experience. No, I'm not. Uh, I have personally have seen you going to gym, and uh, you're the sport, you're the sportsman here that plays badminton uh, uh, every every other morning, any morning, right? I mean, uh, after the marriage, or oh, you know, it's really hard to <laughs> under the <laughs> sports. Uh, yeah, but right now we have with us our next guest, um, Professor William Wisdom. Um, Professor uh, William uh, was born and raised in Brighton, UK. William Wisden studied natural sciences at the University of uh, Cambridge and then uh, did research concerning various aspects of the biochemistry of the brain at the universities um, and at different universities in Germany. Um, um, Moreover, uh, Professor uh, William uh, is also a founder member of the UK Dementia Research Institute at Imperial, uh, where he studies how sleep quality uh, impacts dementia-related uh, pathology. Um, good morning, uh, peace be on you, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning. Pleased to be on it. Thank you. Uh, Professor, based on your um, on the research uh, you have done on sleep, uh, can you elaborate and explain um, some of your findings? Yes, thank you very much. So we discovered that in our brains there's special kind of wiring, like brain circuits, that um, when we get sleepy, they sort of understand that we're tired and they actually make us go to sleep. So my research group and other research groups around the world found the kind of um, transistor wiring diagram, if you like, that sort of senses when we're sleepy and uh, tells us, sort of almost forces us to go to sleep. So we've been working out this very complicated uh, wiring diagram in the brain to sense how to make us go to sleep. Mm. And um, what is the link between um, sleep and the human brain? Well, so um, we, we actually don't understand the purpose of sleep, strangely. Mm -hmm. so, although it's something we have to do every day. If I took out a bet and said, I'm going to pay you uh, $100,000 to stay awake until Saturday, mm -hmm. and I measured your brain waves, uh, nobody would be able to do it. Possibly if they took drugs, but you can't do it. You can't fight the urge to sleep. And strangely, sleep researchers haven't yet discovered the reason we have to sleep, but uh, as we all know, if you miss a night's sleep or you do shift work, for example, you do feel terrible. So sleep is very important for our health, and we can all tell that ourselves from our own individual experience, but individual scientific studies have shown that sleep needs for a variety of things to keep us healthy. Mm -hmm. And Professor, is it true that um, chronic poor sleep can it can increase the likelihood of developing dementia and heart disease. Uh, yes, so um, that's been studied in British civil servants, the, mm -hmm. the risk of dementia. So people volunteered over a career, so over 20 to 30 years. They had their health checked every year. Mm. And um, people that are self-reported poor sleepers 
so they, so they had like activity watches and things. And um, they have a slightly increased risk of dementia. Mm. Um, but uh, there are other things that go uh, wrong if you're a poor sleeper. And uh, there are studies that if you if you if you sleep poorly, um, mm. you have an increased risk of heart disease, for example. And it also affects your immune system, the ability to fight diseases if, if you sleep poorly. So whatever the main reason for sleep is, it affects all aspects of our health. So it's very important to get a good night's sleep if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor, as you know that uh, in today's uh, day and age, uh, many people are suffering from this kind of, uh, I would say, disease. Um, so just for such people, um, uh, what are some positive lifestyle and sleep habits uh, individuals can adopt in order to yeah, get a... Yeah. yeah, so if you're uh, if you have the luxury of your life of living like us mm-hmm. in London, mm-hmm. um, the best way to uh, help yourself sleep is to always try to go to bed at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely don't take your mobile phone or iPad tablet mm-hmm. to bed because it gives off a kind of light, a certain kind of light, blue light that tricks your <coughs> body into thinking it's dawn rather than time to go to bed. And so the other, so always go to sleep at the same time. Don't take your phone. Don't watch TV as you fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And, um, if, but it, but it's sometimes natural to feel stressed and wake up. And then what you must, what the best thing to do is just get up mm-hmm. and do something else. Don't torment yourself by staying in bed and thinking I can't go to sleep. Just get up, mm-hmm. and eventually your body will take over. And um, the good thing about Sleep is it will become overwhelming eventually. So if you don't feel tired or you just can't sleep, get up, mm-hmm. walk around, then watch TV or something in a separate room, then go back to bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor, I have seen that uh, many people say that don't use uh, your phone or any kind of um, tablet or TV before going to bed or going to sleep. But yes. uh, it's really easy to say, but it's really hard to, you know, uh, stop your urge uh, from using uh, such kind of, you know, um, uh, things before going to sleep. Yes, well, that's an excellent point. Of course, that's the general frailty of human life. We mm. get weighed down by our habits. <laughs> I mean, it's a bad habit. So uh, that's a challenge in overcoming any bad habit. So all I can say is, of course, uh, I understand sometimes why people take their phone and tablet to bed, but if you just even realize that it's a bad habit, it can stop you doing it if you're so determined. I mean, Dr. Professor, if you can give us some kind of any alternative or substitute to this. Um, uh, hello, Professor, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. So I was saying that if you can, you know, kind of give us a solution or any kind of alternative or substitute to this in order to try to sleep you mean yeah. uh, yes so if, so if so so if you go to your doctor that's the first thing you do if, if you think you you suffer from insomnia which mm-hmm. many people do um insomnia is a serious thing uh, so take that seriously yourself go to your doctor and the first thing they will recommend is something called cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. so it's it's more than just overcoming these habits. They actually recommend you work with a kind of a sleep therapist. Uh, I think you can get it on the NHS. And they, 
look at the whole aspects of your life uh, to help you sleep. But uh, as you point out, it's still very difficult to overcome these habits. So if that doesn't work, uh, there's a couple of very good medication tab sleeping tablets, if you like, that do help clinically help you sleep. Um, but um, it's not good to take those for more than, say, four four months. That's the current clinical recommendation. Um, so the doctors will still do everything to help you have what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. That's the first line of treatment for insomnia. Mm-hmm. But uh, a very short-term stress, you know, an insomnia, uh, there's a couple of very good medication uh, that the doctor can prescribe you mm-hmm. uh, to help you sleep, and they will work to help you sleep. But like all kinds of medications, it's good to try to get off them if you can. Mm-hmm. And it's not a recommended long-term use, so maybe four months maximum. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor, thank you very much for giving us your your valuable time and uh, your valuable advice as well. And also, thank you so much for joining us. And we would like to uh, hear from you in the future as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Professor William Wilson, born and raised in Brighton and studied uh, natural sciences. Uh, he is also a founder member of the UK Dementia Research Institute at Imperial, where he studies how sleep quality impacts uh, dementia-related pathology. And um, as we were uh, discussing before our uh, guest um, to the summit angle, uh, we would also like to play a very short clip. Mubaz, um, if you can. Yeah, the short clip is is. Um his Holiness, the, the current head of, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Azam Azam Shuri Ahmed, he um, answers a, a question related to depression. Um, so we will listen to his um, words of wisdom for the, for, for, for the ending of, of, of this segment. My question is, depression and anxiety are becoming very common these days. Hazur, can you please provide guidance regarding this matter and what is your view about mental health? It is because uh, we have we are involved too much in the materialistic things. The, the preference order of our desires and our wishes have changed. And the, instead of seeking Allah's love and Allah's closeness, we are running after worldly things. Hmm? This is the main cause of it. And uh, when your desires are not fulfilled, you cannot uh, get whatever you want, then you become frustrated. And then that frustration leads to anxiety. So, Allah Ta'ala has said in the Holy Quran, Allah visited Allah that remembrance of Allah is the best way for the satisfaction of your heart. Right? So, if you remember Allah, whenever you have any problem, you bow before Allah, you offer your five daily prayers fervently, sincerely, then Allah will give comfort 
and satisfy your heart, right? And resultantly, you will feel comfortable and better. And uh, most of the patients nowadays who are having uh, this anxiety problem are because they are too much inclined towards worldly things. So, if you try to get closer to Allah Ta'ala, then at least 80% of your anxiety will finish. Okay? So, you are lucky that Allah Ta'ala has given you the chance to be the member of that community who, are, who is following the, the reformer of the age, the former Messiah, whose advent was foretold. So, he has asked us that instead of running after worldly things, we try to get closer to your Creator. And that will, that will give you satisfaction and comfort. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. In the name of Allah, the most gracious and merciful, dear listeners, um, those were the words of wisdom from His Holiness, Hazrat Mizra, Mr. Rahmat. And as we are now uh, moving on to our third segment for today, which is two in five adults in England wouldn't visit their GP for possible cancer symptoms. Now, according to a poll for NHS England, two in five adults in, in England wouldn't visit their GP for possible cancer symptoms. This figure is particularly higher among men compared to 35% of women who say they wouldn't speak to the doctor. With the predicted 2,000 extra cancer patients a week by 2024 and waiting times for NHS cancer treatment at a record high, the NHS is failing many with its cancer treatments. A growing epidemic of preventable cancers will lead to 184,000 people in the UK being diagnosed, according to recent research, and it will cost the country more than £78 billion. So, um, we've got to understand why people don't want to visit the GP, even when they are aware of having no possible cancer symptoms. People, then you have people might avoid visiting the GP due to, to, to fear and anxiety, you know. Um, and that's, obviously that's normal uh, for someone to feel anxious if that there's something that could have to do with a, a potential cancer diagnosis. So a quarter of, of respondents, you know, they, they, they expressed their tendency to wait and see if a potential symptom, if it improves. Mm. Or, you know, simply ignore it and it might go away. Some people engage in, in, in denial or cling into the belief that it won't be cancer, uh, potentially due to the fear of facing a serious illness. And the, the, the survey um, results suggest a significant gap in public awareness and willingness to address potential health concerns, uh, possibly contributing to, to delayed cancer progress and diagnosis. And then busy lifestyles and, and perceived time constraints, you know, they can cause people to, to postpone the GP visits, um, especially if they consider symptoms um, unnecessary or they assume that 
you know they they can't make time for a medical consultation mm. and that's something which um, a lot of people then um use as an excuse as well i mean i know when we know that this of you can feel something wrong uh, unless it's something that's very urgent right mm. unless you know okay, okay i need medical attention which i might need to be taken to the hospital and that's when uh, we end up, but it's, it's very important for us to the slightest thing is it's best to um keep on 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 your gp's case i know sometimes you have to call gp at 7:30 in the morning to get an appointment but is it something you have to do to to look after yourself um and it comes um uh as as a duty towards your own self as well to look after your to your being because it's uh, um, a blessing from from god the almighty so we need to uh, look after it as well so certainly as you know it comes no holy quran as well that uh, your body has also uh, right uh, on you mm. so so you need to fulfill not only the rights of other human beings but also need to fulfill your own body uh, body's rights and um, also I, i i believe it's important to realize that um people who who go through cancer as well or have, they've seen loved ones that have been through cancer mm. um there is is undoubtedly is 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 ground shaking for a person right yeah. nevertheless um it's important for you to get checked to make sure your family member is getting checked if you see that they're not well mm. because the earlier the better and no matter how last minute they might say that oh um is stayed stage 4 we can't do anything oh everybody right mm. uh, we should remember that allah the almighty uh, you know he revealed to to muslims um through his 99 names um among those uh is um uh, al shafi yeah. yes uh, the healer so he is telling us that he possesses the power to heal us mm. and um in addition to this the the holy quran speaks on this and says that um and when i am ill it is he who restores me to health in chapter 28 verse 81 mm-hmm. so it's important to realize that no matter what the doctors say and and obviously they've got medical experts and medical advice mm-hmm. which we need to take and then we also need to have the belief and then we need to pray towards our diseases as well yeah, there's one God one point um sorry uh, to please, please, please. Uh, there's one point i would like to mention is that uh, you really beautifully explained the islamic point as well but the point is that uh, as it comes in the in the sins of the holy prophet sallallahu that first you need to tie the camel hmm. then you need to believe in the in the god almighty i know that it is uh, the attribute of god almighty as shafi yeah. yeah to believe in it uh, we should do it uh, as being a muslim but before that it is our responsibility to tie the camel first uh, which is which means that you should need to contact your gp you go to hospital uh, get checked and mm. then also you know believe in the attribute of uh, allah the almighty's uh, attribute which is ashafi mm-hmm. um with that daniel we have um a pre-recorded interview mm-hmm, yeah. um if you can kind of just introduce our guest and everything so the pre-recording interview is um Uh, from uh, Dr. Gianmarco Contino um he's a clinician scientist at the University of uh, Birmingham uh, specializing in translational oncology of gastrointestinal cancers and cancer genomic medicine uh, he leads a research group that focuses on exploring cancer genome structural 
uh, variations to develop innovative diagnostic and therapeutic uh, approaches for for upper uh, gastrointestinal cancers as well as um, pioneering the use of structural uh, variation in germline uh, genomes to um, identify cancer predisposition. Uh, Dr. Gianmarco Contino, good morning, please join you and welcome. How, how are you doing yourself? Good morning, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm doing very well, thank you. So, Doctor, my first question to you is that, in your opinion, uh, what is the main reason people in the UK, uh, they don't want to visit and confront their GP even when they suspect that uh, uh, they may have possible cancer symptoms? Well, of course, we, we live in complex societies and solutions and to those questions need to uh, be addressed from different uh, angles. Uh, obviously, you know, one of the main reasons might be lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Some people might not recognize the symptoms of cancer or they may underestimate the severity. Uh, mm-hmm. There is also a lack of awareness about the importance of early diagnosis and this leads to the second point, that if uh, people are more informed on how successful uh, and how different the prognosis is when cancer is caught early, this might mm-hmm. lead to a more proactive approach towards prevention and screening. Um, mm-hmm. There's also other um, um, other things that do, do not go... That, yes, the, the reason is that we, we do live in complex societies, and so solutions need to be addressed from different angles. The main problem might be lack of awareness. You know, some people might not recognize what are the symptoms that should uh, take them to the GT, and uh, they might not even recognize how important early diagnosis can be in terms of prognosis for cancer. Uh, So if we inform people about uh, how successful can we be when cancer is caught early, this might lead uh, to uh, more compliance and uh, and uh, um, and taking them to the GP earlier. Nowadays, like about thirty percent, a third of the cancer diagnosis are happen actually in uh, emergency department, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, probably one of the highest rates across Europe. And uh, this is something we should do uh, something about that. But also means that that in general, uh, people. Uh, uh, and wait for very severe symptoms while they should be um, should be going to the doctor and take some diagnostic uh, at the very first mm-hmm. symptom. Perfect. And as a cancer scientist in the UK, uh, doctor, uh, what do you think that um, NHS is doing well in terms of you know cancer treatment, and also what are some improvements that can be made uh, in terms of this? So, um, obviously, you know, NHS is offering uh, um, uh, universal access. So, we know that mm. uh, a, that equal access to healthcare is uh, one of the uh, most important factors in ensuring that the population is healthy. And there are also national cancer strategies. There, are, there is a world-leading cancer research. There are specialized cancer centers. There are nationwide screening programs which are put in place. Those are all um, 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 strengths of the NHS that we should really um, uh, we should we should really be proud of. But of course, there are a lot of areas of improvement. Um, 
in, in particularly when it comes to reducing uh, the diagnosis, um, uh, the, the delay to diagnosis, uh, and that comes again to um, increasing uh, the awareness about early diagnosis, uh, building trust with patients and uh, building trust, especially with the communities that we know tend to engage less with the screening programs and uh, and uh, healthcare, uh, the healthcare system. Uh, addressing mm. other <laughs> issues, like for example, uh, um, uh, increasing the pay patient education, um, mm. helping people with uh, mental health condition that might have uh, less access to healthcare, addressing regional mm. variation. Not all the country is the same, and not, it doesn't address equally uh, the, the um, cancer prevention and cancer and cancer treatment, and strengthening primary care investment in primary care might actually be very beneficial when it comes to prevention. And, uh, Doctor, you know, there's a recent study that um, the chance of uh, 184,000 more people in the UK uh, being diagnosed with preventable cancers that can cost um, 78 billion pounds uh, in the coming years. So my question is that what steps can be taken to prevent that from happening? Well, yes, that's that's a very good point. Cancer is uh, the cancer burden is increasing. We know that about one in two people that are born in the UK in, after nineteen sixty one will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Uh, so fifty mm-hmm. percent of the population. But about four out of these uh, ten cancer in UK can be prevented, uh, and that leads you to uh, the figure of about you know. 150,000 cases annually that can be prevented. And of course, there are uh, different factors, you know, that, that, that can, uh, can be uh, different action that can be put in place to prevent cancer. Some of them are uh, linked to NHS and the healthcare system and the, the thing that we discussed before. There are other, but you know, we shouldn't ignore that um, the most important uh, risk factor to develop cancer are actually related to um, lifestyle. For example, mm-hmm. obesity, smoking, alcohol intake, and uh, uh, are, you know UV light exposure. Those are uh, really important risk factors that can be modified if people are aware of the of the risks that are associated to that, and if they have access to education to programs to uh, reduce the burden of these uh, uh, risk factors. Uh, of course, this is, you know, this, uh, this is, you know, there are very complex issues, you know, that they have to go through school, mm-hmm. through welfare, through councils, uh, through national programs. Um, fortunately, now we also have some uh, um, uh, very effective medical uh, medical action that we can take. For example, HPV vaccines can offer mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, protection to a certain type of, of type of cancer. So it's a combination of factors. Some of them are you know need to be led by patients themselves uh, together mm-hmm. with this with the public health uh, system to make sure that we achieve the tar- the target of uh, reducing the burden of preventable cancers. And Dr. my last question to you is that um, you know, we live in an era of unrelenting scientific discoveries. So what does the future hold for us in terms of cancer prevention and, and its treatment? 
Well, obviously, you know, we uh, we are really living in a uh, in a time, in an exciting timing in a, in a, in a cancer research, and um, many of the discoveries that have happened in the last year are now finding uh, their way uh, to patients. This comes to advanced treatment, personalized medicine, but also the integration of genomics and uh, and biomarkers that can help us. Identify cancer very early, or identify a predisposition to cancer. So, for example, uh, you know, this one one of the of the uh, big changes that we will see in the near future is the availability of tests for uh, uh, for asymptomatic patients, so subjects that do not have any symptoms of cancer. Uh, and those are tests that can be based on a simple blood drawing. So a simple uh, sample of blood can actually provide mm. uh, uh, some uh, estimate of whether um, the, the patient has a cancer that is undiagnosed. And of course, this, 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 some of these tests, like the GRACE test, are already in clinical trials. And we have to define what is the... Uh, what are the benefits and how then we can manage those patients in a way to uh, um, to, to avoid overdiagnosis, which is the other risk of increasing too much, uh, you know, of having a, um, an excess of uh, of testing. Although these are these are not things that will uh, benefit here today. I think mm-hmm. what well, you know we we can really be optimistic about a future where we'll be able to identify. Cancer earlier. Uh, as for today, what remains important is that we uh, we try to minimize our risk factors. So we engage in a healthy lifestyle. Uh, we take ownership of our health, engaging, for example, with uh, our GP to make sure that we are following the uh, screening tests that are suggested for our age. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, in, and of course, you know, listen to our body, you know, do not, uh, do not underestimate the sign that our body sends, uh, at the very early stage and talk with our GP, uh, um, to, to see whether there's anything that we should do about that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Perfect. Um, thank you so much, uh, doctor, for, you know, um, addressing this issue and uh, enlightening us. Also, you know, you have said that it is really important that uh, we also do need to take care of our lifestyle as well, you know, which affects uh, the most. And uh, also, you know, I hope and pray that uh, after listening to you, um, people get uh, more awareness regarding this issue and uh, we see the positive results of this. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time out for the interview. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. That was uh, a brilliant interview, um, Dr. Gianmarco Contino. And um, as we were discussing before the interview, um, the Islamic uh, points as well. So <clears throat> the Holy Prophet upon him is reported to have said that there is no disease that Allah has created except that He has also created mm. its treatment. Um, very important point to keep this in mind. Definitely. And then the Holy Prophet, uh, has also taught Muslims to pray, you know, to whoever prays for their brother when they are not present. And angels uh, pray for the same to be accepted in favor of that supplicant. 
And also at the same time, we should be praying for um, you know all the doctors and all those people <coughs> that are helping and okay. providing these services, okay. especially the NHS, mm. because we can see that unfortunately it is failing in a, in in a couple of areas, mm. and that's due to its own administrative uh, factor. What is going on? The burden on it, exactly. So, but uh, our what we can do for them is to pray for them and thank them mm. uh, in this regard for for all they are doing as well. Certainly, it's not to you know teaches us to care for other people, especially mm. when they are in need, and thus fostering a you know a very loving environment. And uh, <clears throat> so, as you know, it is uh, the same message with the with which uh, the Prophet uh, came, and he said that I came to you know to for the due rights of uh, humankind and uh, human beings, and for the Secondly, for the rights of Allah Almighty. Um, thank you, Daniel. May God bless you. That is bringing us towards the end of uh, today's uh, breakfast show. Um, dear listeners, thank you for joining and, and being with us. I'd like to thank our esteemed guests for joining us as well and answering our questions and, and providing us with their expertise and advice. I'd like to thank our producers, Dania Nasir and Shehla Atik. The researchers Ariba, Komal, Kashifa, Azka, Barira Tahir. And obviously our uh, brother in the tech department, Brother uh, Shehriyar. Uh, thank you very much. And um, do join us with tomorrow's breakfast show as well. Uh, 